Welcome to America the Bazaar. I'm your host, Jordan Rausch. And I'm Jeremy. And this is a weekly podcast that deep dives into all the stories that made America into the beautiful weirdo she is today. Yes. So, man, what a week we've had. Yeah. Oh. We uh, had a little bit of a scare. There was, Jeremy was confirmed to have an exposure to coronavirus so all week we have been in major lockdown even more so than usual not even going to the grocery store just having even groceries just delivered to our front porch and so yeah luckily test results came back negative thank goodness also found out that uh, pretty much the day before that happened that my my law school is closing down so i'm applying for Law school again for the second time. Yep. So, <laughs> so we got that going. <laughs> so we're on. also doing that. Yeah. It's just been a busy week here. So yeah. I hope just it kind of almost made you know we've been doing I feel like lockdown for a long time now. Yeah, it's only been three or f- three or four months, and and it, I mean it seems like it's been longer, but it it was it almost like <laughs> almost when, as long as our marriage. Yeah. Well, <laughs> almost. <laughs> But uh, it seemed like, though, that when you got the call that you had a confirmed exposure, it was like, oh, yeah, we're doing it because of coronavirus. Mm-hmm. That's still happening. Yep. And it kind of brought it back into focus. All right. Presidential trivia this week. Yes. Which president is credited with the origin of the word OK? Any hmm. guesses? No. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> how old do you think the word OK is? I want to say pretty old. Pretty old. So, yeah. like, one of the first presidents, you're yeah. thinking? Yeah. Okay. I'm thinking, like, first first ten. Okay. I think that's a good guess. Yeah. Well, the answer will be at the end of this episode, so stay tuned. Nice. Sometimes I wonder if anybody just listens to this podcast for presidential trivia and skips through all the meaty parts. <laughs> Probably not. They just listen to the intro and they're like, oh yeah, that's presidential trivia. That's all I'm here for. Yeah, yeah. And then they skip to the end. Yeah. I hope not. There's yeah. some fun stuff in the middle. Yeah. Anyways, so this week we are starting our episode with Douglas MacArthur, who was born on January 26th, 1880. At the Little Rock Barracks in Arkansas. So when I first read that, I was like, he was born like in the barracks, but apparently the whole base (laughs) is literally called Little Rock Rock Barracks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, probably. (laughs) Maybe. Anyways, MacArthur's father had received the Medal of Honor while fighting for the Union Army during the Civil War. After the war, Douglas MacArthur's father traveled with his family to several different army posts across the southwestern United States. Looking back at his upbringing, MacArthur said, It was here I learned to ride and shoot even before I could read or write, indeed almost before I could walk or talk. <laughs> he was the, uh, the, the, the definition of an army brat. Yeah, absolutely. MacArthur attended the West Texas Military Academy and then entered West Point as a cadet in June of 1899. Not wanting to be too far from her son, MacArthur's mother moved into Craney's Hotel, which overlooked West Point Academy. So she could always have an eye on her son. Apparently, MacArthur and Ulysses S. Grant, I think it was the third, 
yeah. the uh, the famous General Ulysses Grant's son. They were at West Point at the same time, and both their mothers were staying at the hotel. Huh. So they got made fun of a lot for their moms yeah. being right there. Mom, you gonna come bring you your blanket? Well, for both for their father being generals, Militaries. yeah, and then for their moms being there, yeah. It was kind of like, oh, do you really deserve a spot here? Yeah. And you're both mamas' boys, yeah. No, there's a, definitely a part of MacArthur's career where it's like, mm, kind of riding the coattails of Actually, of father. I, looking into MacArthur's career, a lot of it was... Riding coattails. It was riding coattails. Yeah. I would say most of it. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to keep going, though. But uh, after graduating from West Point, MacArthur joined the 3rd Engineer Battalion and left with them for the Philippines in 1903. In 1905, MacArthur was assigned as his father's aide-de-camp. Yeah. So, is that like an assistant, mostly? Yeah, it's 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 a uh, it's an assistant. Yeah. yeah. That's the best way to describe it. So, he's it. a second lieutenant, and then all of a sudden, he's like, oh, you get to be this major general's assistant. Right. But only because... Them, like, typically, the, the rank gap is usually lieutenants, captains, I think, captains... Uh, maybe majors for four-star generals, depending upon the position that they're in. Yeah. Um, but it's it's usually kind of a part of their development so that they can see what it's like, you know, that couple la- couple levels higher right. than what they would to get to see. To kind of learn, learn yeah, the yeah, ropes yeah, kind of thing. Not necessarily to, to learn the ropes, but just for them to have a better understanding of, like, military operations and how decisions that are made at this higher level and flow down. So would you say it's usually people that, you know, other officers, higher officers are like, this guy's going places. Maybe he needs to. Yeah. It's a very, it's a very prestigious position. I mean, you're, you know, you're smart, you're squared away, you know, your military customs and courtesies because that's a large part of it. You're oftentimes dealing with foreign dignitaries. Right. Um, you're coordinating with all sorts of different um, units and both administratively and militarily, like, you know, going and visiting, uh, you know, units that are a subordinate command of that general. Right. So, so usually, yeah, not something that goes to a second lieutenant right out of the academy but, no it does it oh, does oh really yeah yeah absolutely. Oh, okay. um, so it wasn't totally out but, of line but i mean but, for his dad to go to but, his dad I mean, he, yeah. that's the nepotism and that's where you're like okay that's where the nepotism so comes anyways in. and it sounds like this was his father was now a major general so we'll say that and i think i said that before but he was going to go on a tour through asia visiting different military bases in 11 different countries which was a huge tour. So they're going to Japan, they're going to India, they're mm-hmm. going everywhere. And what I read, it sounded more like a family, a really long family vacation. Yeah. Like Mac- Douglas MacArthur's mom also came and they're tra- treated like royalty. It wasn't so much military. It was more like a very fancy family vacation. That on, his, the, on the U.S. dime. Yes, that his dad appointed him aide de camp so that he got to go on, on the vacation. vacation. Yeah. yeah. 
After returning to the United States, MacArthur held several positions, including working in the White House for President Theodore Roosevelt and becoming the Army's first public relations officer, where he is largely regarded as the person who was able to convince the American people to go along with the Selective Service Act of 1917. Hmm. He, like, made it sound like, oh, yeah, this is, you're doing this for your country. So that was actually something that he actually... One of his major accomplishments, yeah. Yeah. During World War I, MacArthur was promoted to Brigadier General and led the Rainbow Division through the battlefront in France. And the Rainbow Division was actually a combination of National Guard units. units. Yeah. After the war, MacArthur was assigned as the superintendent of West Point. During his time there, he met a young heiress named Louise Cromwell Brooks. After getting married, MacArthur was given an assignment in the Philippines, and while there, he was promoted, which made him the Army's youngest major general. Louise had... Which is a three-star. Which is a three-star general, yep. No, two stars, excuse me. Okay. It's a two-star. Be my little general. Brigadier, major, lieutenant, general. Okay. One, two, three-star. So he's a two-star general. So he's a two-star general now. (laughs) He he keeps getting stars, so it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. Um, Louise came to the Philippines with MacArthur, but she hated it there. MacArthur and Louise moved back to the United States in 1926, but he went back a few years later. Louise decided to stay and moved to New York instead of joining him in the Philippines. MacArthur then heard that gossip columns were reporting that Mrs. MacArthur was clinging to the arms of men, not her husband. Oh. Which is scandalous. Scandalous. Yeah, she's hooking up with Jody. That's what it's called. Really? Yeah, like uh, uh, the, the, God, I can't even think of the other term. So a Jody uh-huh. like, is the dude or the girl. That's back home hooking up with your, your significant spouse. other. Yeah. So, and then MacArthur received paperwork from Louise's attorneys that she was seeking a divorce. And MacArthur agreed on... He got served in the Philippines? Yeah. (laughs) Well, it was... He found out from her attorneys that she moved to Reno and that she was serving him with divorce papers. Reno and she's going to... I mean, if she's going to move to Reno, you want a divorce. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, MacArthur agreed to the divorce on any ground that would not compromise his honor. They were officially divorced on July 18, 1929. In 1930, MacArthur was appointed Chief of Staff of the Army, which I believe actually moved him to four stars. So he got a three star in there somewhere, I would hope. And Chief of Staff of the Army is like, that's the highest. In the Army. In in the Army. Yeah. And he moved back to Washington, D.C., Mm, he, Chief of Staff of the Army, Secretary of the Army is the highest. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, so he's... But I think... Yeah. It's still... It's up there. It's it's very up there. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm never going to make it to those kind of <laughs> levels of command, so I'm just... It's... Um, MacArthur moved into the officer's quarters, number one, at Fort Myer, Virginia, and moved his mother in with him. His oh father had gosh. died before, and so he's still very close with his mother that has literally almost always been there. I followed him everywhere. Yes, yeah, so she gets to move in with him in his new fancy Doug, officer housing. Be safe, Dougie. <laughs> when he became chief of staff, MacArthur seemed to take on a more relaxed role, an eccentric personality after living his whole life by abiding to strict rules of military life. 
MacArthur would wear a Japanese kimono while in his office. Had a man bun and smoked a lot of weed. It kind of (laughs) almost sounds like it. Uh, Hot days, he would fan himself with an Asian hand fan. He also started using a bejeweled holder for his cigarettes and started to refer himself in the third person when talking to people. He'd be like, well, I think MacArthur would do this or something awful. Eye-rolling. Eye-roll-worthy. Yeah. He also spent a lot of time with his mistress that he had brought from the Philippines. Isabel Isabel Cooper was the daughter of a Scottish businessman and a Chinese Filipino woman that MacArthur had began to date a few months before leaving the Philippines, despite the 34-year age difference. Oh, my gosh. MacArthur was 50, and she was 16, so she was a child. Oh, my gosh. A tiny little baby. Yeah. Back in the Philippines, Isabel was an actress with the stage name of Dimples. She had performed in several vaudeville shows and the Shanghai Chorus Line. In 1926, Isabel made history when she performed the first mouth-to-mouth kiss in a Philippine movie. The movie was called Tatlong Hambog, and she was only 12 years old at the time. Oh. Yeah. Which is also very disappointing. Yeah. Isabel met MacArthur at a party in Manila where she was introduced to him. An American lobbyist who was also at the party said that Isabel looked as if she were carved from the most delicate opaline. And to that I say, back off, dude. She's 16. Yeah, she's a minor. She's a a child. Though MacArthur was absolutely smitten with Isabel, he was afraid of what his mother might say about her. Mostly, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> and no, it wasn't even that she was a kid, just that she was not white. Oh. Uh, yeah. The system. The, the, the disappointing part. Yeah. <laughs> God. That's so frustrating. So he decided to keep Isabel a secret. After he had come back to the United States from the Philippines, he had her come over on a separate boat and then put her in a suite in the Hotel Chastleton when she arrived. MacArthur showered her with gifts, including the finest kimonos and lingerie, but he refused to buy her outdoor clothes because her duty was to lay in bed. Isabel called MacArthur Daddy, which I cannot stress this enough. Ew. I mean, some people are into it. It's a I thing. Don't, you go on the internet. She's sixteen years <laughs> okay, yeah, old. Yeah, yeah, no, that is, yeah, that's. that's she's sixteen, disgusting. and he's fifty. That's disgusting and wrong. So yeah, I'll just. I'll, I don't like it yeah, at all. Yeah. Like you're like you're a dude who is pretty powerful. Very powerful. Like you got to realize, like. You can't take advantage of every situation. Right? There's some that you can, absolutely, but that's not, not one of them. Not this one. That's not one of not them. Not this one. Relationships aren't one of them. Yeah. Because his job required him to travel, and Isabel wasn't allowed to leave her hotel suite, because she literally did not have any clothes that she could leave in. I don't even know if she had shoes. Shoes, yeah. MacArthur bought her a poodle to keep her company. Thanks for the dog. <laughs> And would Thanks send, for the chores. Yeah. How's the and also how's the dog supposed to go to the bathroom if she's not allowed to leave? They probably have like a rooftop garden. Something. Yard. She just the dog just went on the At patio the and then the maids cleaned it up. Yeah. I don't know. He would or also the, Yeah, or they made the servants. Yeah. He would also send her postcards and love letters. 
After about a year of never being able to leave her hotel, Isabel became outspoken with MacArthur about how bored and upset she was becoming. Weird. Because, yeah, she's been locked in a hotel for a year and yeah. only being able to see you. Three months has been hell. Yeah. <laughs> And I do leave the house sometimes. And you see me. And this guy's even, she gets to see one person and he travels a lot. Yeah. And I get to go outside. Yeah. Like, but three months being here is just like, my goodness. So MacArthur reluctantly agreed and gave her a chauffeured car and a large allowance of spending money to use whenever he was out of town. Isabel would use the car to take her to nightclubs when MacArthur was out of town. As, I smell trouble. And started to see other men in Washington, D.C. and Baltimore. During the summer of 1932, which was also the height of the Great Depression, World War I veterans began to arrive into Washington, D.C. The veterans were there to take part in the bonus march a protest that demanded an early payment of the bonus that Congress had agreed to pay out to them after the end of the war. When Congress had passed the bill for the bonus, veterans were issued a certificate that, depending on how much time they served in the war and where, would pay out a maximum of $625, which would be about $9,000 today. Right. But the certificate... even, Even then, during the Great Depression, that wasn't a lot of money. No. Like, that was probably a pretty small pittance of... Well, think, you even think, like, today, we're like, $9,000, like, that'll help, but if we don't have a job, that's still not gonna... Or if you're in the middle of the Great Depression, where the penny, or excuse me, the dollar was just pretty much almost valueless. Yeah. Yeah. Is it really that much? It's a lot. So, and the certificate wouldn't be able to, you couldn't cash it until 1945. Oh, so wow. another 13 years from when they they were protesting. And foreshadowing in the middle of another world war. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The protesting veterans called themselves the Bonus Expedi- Expeditionary Forces. I said, spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> Not shadow, sorry. And were led by a former cannery worker named Walter W. Walters. Walters was a strict leader of the protesters and was against any panhandling, drinking, and radicalism among the group. He wanted this to be a protest with, like, no funny business, nothing that they could, you know, turn in the media or use the government, you know, the government could use to turn on them. Right. By the end of June, there were over 20,000 veterans in D.C. protesting for the early release of funds. But you have to think, a lot of these people don't have jobs. So they were, not only were there 20,000 veterans, but there was, like, they had brought their families with them, too. And they're all in Washington, D.C. because this is maybe the only way that they can get money. Right. Right. Despite the growing numbers, President Herbert Hoover refused to even recognize the group's demands. He just preferred to just ignore it and ignore hope it'd it would go away. Kind of like you with Henry. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> I okay. Snacks? I don't. I don't ignore a toddler. But today he was asking for snacks, and I chose to ignore he, him because he dinner, had had snacks. For he had the past had snacks all six day. Six hours. <laughs> and he had literally just got done eating snacks, and dinner was going to be ready in ten minutes. So I said to myself, "You will ignore him." <laughs> And then he will just eat dinner. And then he grabbed my face in both his chubby little toddler hands and made me look him in the eyes. And he said, snacks. <laughs> and it was very cute. But I still made him wait for dinner. 
That's what Jeremy means when I ignore a toddler. Not that I just let him do whatever he wants. Okay. Back. Okay. So Hoover Hoover ignores them. While in D.C., the Bonas Expeditionary Forces camped in the mudflats of the Anacostia River that overlooked the capital, and the camp was named Hooverville. Ah, I remember Hooverville. Yeah. Army uh, Army Chief of Staff uh, MacArthur had a theory that the protest was organized by communists to undermine the United States government, and that, quote, the movement was actually far deeper and more dangerous than an effort to secure funds from a nearly depleted federal treasury. Nah, dude. It's just a bunch of broke people who want m- money as Sorry, their dude, that's been rich his whole life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> God. That's like... I don't know, like conspiracy theorists who think like the government is just this like intricate, like, like web of like secrets and personnel. I'm like, you understand, like, you can't. When, when in reality, (laughs) it's mostly just a whole bunch of people that suck and can't do their job. No, no, I don't want a blanket statement. That's a terrible blanket statement. Sure. But it's just, like, you realize, like, the amount of effort that would go into coordinating some sort of, like, conspiracy. Like, I guarantee there's too many, there's too many Karens and Kyles in the, in the government to try and keep that, whatever it is, conspiracy, it is, you know, uh, 9-11 was an inside job or whatever, like, that would blow, blow the top off of that. They couldn't keep their mouth shut, you know, shut. So... But, That's yeah. what I say to the most conspiracies. Most of them. Most of them. MacArthur's own staff in the intelligence division looked into a communist conspiracy and found that only three of the 26 leaders of the protest could be identified as communists. And the vast majority of the protesters were actually outspoken anti-communists. Like, nah. these guys are veterans. They're just disgruntled. Yeah. They're just pissed. They, they just want, want money. They want money. They want to be... Ba- they want to be able to provide for their families, and they want the money yeah. that was promised to them for fighting for their country. Yeah. A little early. Yeah. Journalist Joseph C. Harsh said, this was not a revolutionary situation. This was a bunch of people in great distress wanting help. They were simply veterans from World War I who were out of luck, out of money, and wanted to get their bonus, and they needed the money at that moment. Yeah. On June 15th, the House of Representatives passed the Patman Veterans Bill, which would allow for an early release of the bonus funds. However, President Hoover made it known that he would veto it if it ever made it to his desk, which it never even did because the bill was defeated in the Senate on June 17th. With the bill defeated, the bonus protesters started to get frustrated. Understandably. Pelham D. Glassford, the Washington, D.C. police superintendent, could feel tensions mounting and ordered the evacuation of several buildings on Pennsylvania Avenue on July 21st. Congress did pass a law that would allow for the veterans to borrow against their certificates, but were only allowed to borrow as much money as it would take to pay for their travel back home. So they're Mm. like, you can borrow against your, you can take money out of your certificate but only enough money just to get out of here. To get you back to where you came from. And and not bother us. Yeah. Many went home, but around 10,000 veterans stayed, ready to keep fighting for their bonuses. Then on July 28th, several protesters rushed at D.C. police and started to throw bricks at them. Police began firing into the crowd, killing two protesters. 
Yikes. MacArthur was called on to ready an infantry battalion to get the protesters out of downtown Washington, D.C., and would do so with the help of the 3rd Cavalry Regiment, whose executive officer was Major George S. Patton. Hmm. MacArthur's infantry and Patton's cavalry met south of the White House. Patton tried to tell MacArthur that he didn't need to be there, and it might even seem highly inappropriate for him to be on the streets, especially because he was wearing what some called parade dress. He was wearing jodhpurs, black polished cavalry boots, and a tunic that was covered in ribbons and medals. Yeah. So, like, you're not even here... (laughs) Dressed so, in, like... Is this a game to you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> is, this, is this a game to you? You're dressed up. Yeah. You're not in war attire. Yeah. yeah. This isn't a duty uniform for this mission. Yeah, exactly. The rest of the soldiers were wearing gas masks and steel helmets and began to push the protesters down Pennsylvania Avenue towards Hooverville. The protesters began to throw stones and bricks at the soldiers, who then used tear gas to do to disperse the crowd, and sabers to demolish the makeshift shelters. <laughs> President Hoover was starting to get nervous, after he ordered this to happen, Sure, that it might seem like the government was acting too harshly on not only citizens, but veterans. And had Secretary of War Hurley sent orders to MacArthur twice, then MacArthur was not to follow the protesters over the bridge into their camp in Hooverville. According to MacArthur's aide, Dwight D. Eisenhower. What? <laughs> all of the all of the big, big guys names. are here. Yeah. Yeah. So Dwight D. Eisenhower was MacArthur's aide at the time. He didn't have a son that he could, you know, just. No, he didn't have any kids at this time. Yeah. But MacArthur apparently said he was too busy and he did not want to be bothered by people coming down and pretending to bring orders. So he just ignored both of those orders. Presidential orders. Yeah. Huh. MacArthur sent soldiers across the bridge following the protesters. Soon a fire was started among the shelters in Hooverville, and it did not take long for the whole camp to go up in flames. Yeah. Wow. Many many Americans actually applauded the Army's actions against the protesters, seeing it as a necessary but unfortunate way to deal with civil unrest. However, a lot of the press did not feel the same way. The New York Times printed an article with the first sentence reading, Flames rose high over the desolate Anacostia Flats at midnight tonight, and a pitiful stream of refugee veterans of the World War walked out of their home for the past two months, going they knew not where. Like I said, a lot of them just came here because they already didn't have a home. This was their last chance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, trying to make something for themselves. Mm-hmm. And another article. Our government's so <laughs> crappy. <laughs> right? Another article. Just historically, just all throughout history. Just in general. Another article written by Washington Post journalists Drew Pearson and Robert S. Allen described MacArthur's methods as unwarranted, harsh, and brutal, and that MacArthur himself was dictatorial and disloyal. He's Hmm. literally, he was... Ignoring presidential orders. Ignoring presidential orders and basically fighting against veterans. Veterans. That he probably fought alongside. Or, yeah. Or was in charge of, you know? This portrayal of him made MacArthur very upset, and he sued Pearson and Allen for libel for $1.7 million, Hmm. which was around $32.7 million today. 
libel suits were a much bigger deal back then than they are now. Like, mm-hmm. it was actually pretty, like, Common. high probability that if somebody sued you for libel, they were going to win. Yeah. So getting sued for libel was, like, almost devastating. Yeah. Especially for that much money. Yeah. And these are just reporters. I mean. Right. That was, Nowadays, it's like, <laughs> it's pretty hard to... It is pretty hard to actually win a libel case. Like, you have to have a pretty, pretty good... Yeah. Yeah. So, Pearson and Ellen were understandably worried yeah. about this libel case. That was until a congressman from Mississippi told Pearson that he had seen MacArthur frequently visit a suite next to his own in a northwest Washington, D.C. hotel where a beautiful Eurasian girl had been staying. Mm. Pearson was able to use his journalist connections and track down Isabel Cooper in a boarding house near the State War Department building, where she told Pearson all about her love affair with MacArthur. She explained that MacArthur had broken up with her after she enrolled in law school, which I wish I could have found like more information about, because yeah. this girl who was, you know, 16 in... also Asian... Uh, she's probably like 17, 18 now, but she's a woman, a mixed race woman in the thirties. And she had rolled in law school. Yeah. Like MacArthur definitely helped her get in there, but like that alone still is a big feat on its own. And mm-hmm. I applaud her. But anyways, uh, she enrolled in law school. Did you ever figure out a school? I didn't, I didn't even see the school. Yeah. And, um, so she enrolled in law school, but she began to see some of her male classmates after class. If you know what I'm saying. Mm. Yeah, and MacArthur found out about that, Yeah, and he was very upset, and she also spent a lot of money when she went to Havana, Cuba, like a lot of money. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. MacArthur stopped paying for her hotel suite and sent her a letter explaining that they were done with a plane ticket for the Philippines enclosed. Isabel wanted to stay in the United States, but she was broke now. So Pearson offered to pay her to rent some of the love letters from MacArthur that she had kept. Nice. She agreed, and Pearson also moved her to a house in Baltimore to keep her safe from MacArthur in case he went looking for her. The letters Pearson got from Cooper included MacArthur's mushy devotions to Cooper, but also included the Help Wanted ad from a newspaper that MacArthur had sent to Cooper when she asked him to help her brother get a job. What? Yeah, apparently she was like, hey, my brother's coming to the United States. Do you think you could help him get a job? And not that MacArthur is, you know, he's very used to nepotism. Yeah. And so instead of giving, trying to help her brother find a job, he cut out a help wanted section from a newspaper and sent that back to her. That's it. Here's some opportunities. Yeah. <clears throat> wow. Very sassy. Yeah. This guy's just a dick. Yeah, he is. He <laughs> is. At a pretrial hearing for the libel suit, Pearson's lawyer stated that they intended to have a Miss Isabel Cooper placed on the witness stand. MacArthur all of a sudden seemed very unsettled by the fact, and as soon as the pretrial proceeding was finished, he sent Major Eisenhower to go find Cooper. I, like, kind of feel bad for Eisenhower. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of sucks that you, like, get to that point in your career and you're still, like, doing this other dude's, oh, like, doing... dirty laundry. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and, like, it's crazy because it's, like, that stuff still happens. Well, I'm sure it does. Um, I mean, I don't have any personal experience with it, but I think it was, like, 2016, there was a 
some some amount of stars general who was having their staff and aide de camps or something literally doing their laundry like dropping it off at the dry cleaners and it's like mm, i don't know if you know what year this is but like right that's not what you, those individuals are for no. like back in the day maybe like civil war era that but you're was what literally it was for. wasting their talents yeah in taxpayer dollars mm-hmm. like that's somebody who's been trained because yeah these guys are not cheap assistants yeah <laughs> luckily for cooper eisenhower was unable to locate her thanks to pearson moving her to baltimore yeah and even though McCarthy, which really isn't that far away it's not that far away but they kept the house where she was staying in hidden yeah. like it was like a safe house yeah yeah, but I i mean, for me, who's geographically challenged, I used to think that, like, you know, every everywhere was, like, every state was, like, the size of Idaho, but, like, no. so if there's get- no traffic on the East Coast, you can get, go through, like, 17 different states in, like, five minutes. Yeah, I love how If it's, there's no traffic. I always thought it was so funny when you looked at a map or you're memorizing the states and, you know, whatever history class, and all of these East Coast states are super little. Now have the lines drawn off to the side. And the more you move west, they just get bigger. And I think people were just tired and lazy from creating states. So they're like, ah, just make this one like this big. (laughs) Yeah. Just draw a square over here. This is Wyoming. This is Montana. MacArthur had already spent $16,000 in legal fees for this libel suit, which equals around $300,000 today. Wow. So a lot of money. Yeah. But he dropped the libel suit without giving any explanation. Yeah. On December 24th, 1934, Pearson's aide received $15,000 in $100 bills that he then gave to Isabel Cooper along with her letters from MacArthur. When Admiral William Leahy found out about MacArthur dropping his libel suit, he said MacArthur could have won the suit. He was a bachelor at the time. He could have just said, so what? You know why he didn't do it? It was that old woman he lived with at Fort Myer. He didn't want his mother to learn about that Eurasian girl. <laughs> God, it's so just like this the the face like But this, why is it important? But this but like this time their racism worked out in her favor. Yeah, true. Not that it's right, but luckily like finally it worked out for her. Once. I just can't just can't be a decent human being and right. like anyways. With her cash, Cooper moved to the Midwest and opened up a beauty shop. And then a little bit after that, moved to LA where she tried to make it in Hollywood using the stage name Cha Bing. Cause you gotta have a more Asian name than Isabel Cooper, apparently, to play an Asian in Hollywood. Hmm. Cooper got a role as an extra in the 1946 movie Anna and the King of Siam, and then as Lily Mae Wong in the Charlie Chan movie The Chinese Ring in 1947. Hmm. She was able to get a couple more roles in the 50s, but by 1960, she wasn't able to get any work, and she fell into a deep depression. Isabel Cooper died of a drug overdose suicide on June 29, 1960, at 46 years old. Hmm. As for Douglas MacArthur, shortly after the libel suit was dropped, he decided to leave his position as chief of staff, partly because he was frustrated working under Franklin D. Roosevelt, right, and partly because his friend Manuel Quezon, who was also the president of the Philippines, asked MacArthur to come back to the Philippines and help raise and train up a Philippine army in case the Japanese invaded. As an advisor. Yep. And they did. 
yeah, spoiler alert, the Japanese did invade. Yeah. (laughs) And guess who didn't stick around to advise? (laughs) Well, while on a ship back to the Philippines, MacArthur met an American woman named Jean Marie Faircloth. They quickly fell in love and got married on April 30th, 1937. They had a son they named Arthur in 1938. So they got to work. And he finally had a son, like, in his 50s. Wow. Late 50s. During World War II, MacArthur was forced That's to... so old. It's so <laughs> During World War II, MacArthur was forced to flee to Australia from the Philippines due to the Japanese invasion. Mm-hmm. But he vowed to return, and he did, and liberated the Philippines from Japan's grip in 1944. When he was... After he was reappointed to the... What it was like a... Pacific Command position. Yeah. But that is the story about how a very famous U.S. general got blackmailed by his mistress. Sure. Yeah. That serves him right. It does. I'm on her side. For shame, for shame on his racist mother. Yes. (laughs) And his inability to stand up to her because of her racism. Like... Dude, come on. Have I don't, a backbone. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it would have worked out in the end anyways. I don't think Isabel was ever in love with... No, no. Absolutely MacArthur. not. She was just trying to get to the U.S. Trying to, which, yeah, trying to improve her, her situation. She was a child, and he took advantage of her, so her getting any like that amount of money was actually not enough. Right. Anyways, my sources for this story... <laughs> Yeah. Are I just God. I don't know. It's just disappointing all around that you're like, oh, this is a huge guy in our history and he just kind of got everything handed to him and Riding the coattails of his father off of off of uh the Civil War and and you know into World War One he just kinda was like he kind of just kind of pushed along and yeah he just kind of got pushed along like he did like he did okay it's not like he was bad at yeah. his I've, job I've honestly I've never read or 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 researched or anything MacArthur specifically as far as like what he was like as either as a leader or as a tactician or anything but I don't think like he's not well known for any major victories like I'm not saying that he was like Patton or Eisenhower right. like well that's the difference having that sort of influence that's the difference between MacArthur and Patton and Eisenhower is that MacArthur did get put in these places of power because of his family mm-hmm. he was actually I would say good at his job I'm not gonna say great but he was good at he was what a he performer. did he was good. There are probably people that could have done better, mm-hmm. but he didn't do terrible at his job. Yeah. And because of who he came from and how well he did perform, he just kept rising. Yeah. God. So my sources for the story are The Bonus March, a PBS American Experience article, MacArthur, Three Generations, a PBS American Experience article, Douglas MacArthur's Secret Affair with a Filipino Starlet by Alex Castro. The Generals, Patton MacArthur, Marshall, and the Winning of World War II by Winston Groom. Douglas MacArthur, Statecraft and Stagecraft in America's East Asian Policy by Russell D. Buhite. All right. You ready for 
presidential trivia. Yes. Which president is responsible for the word okay? Okay. It was Martin Van Buren. Oh, Van Buren. Van Buren. He was born in Kinderhook, New York. Mm -hmm. And when he got into politics, his nickname became Old Kinderhook, which then got shortened to the letters OK. So when people were talking about Martin Van Buren, they're like, he's OK. And then I think (laughs) because he was just okay and that was his nickname then the like the word okay so yeah i'm okay yeah i'm all right yeah he's okay i'm okay we're okay it was okay it was okay it was it was dinner it was okay yeah it was okay (laughs) (laughs) that's where the word okay comes from nice nice If you like this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to us. If you want to know more about this episode, other episodes, look for merchandise, please go to americathebazaar.com. If you'd like to support this podcast, please go to patreon.com and search for America the Bazaar. And we hope that you stay safe. Stay healthy. And until next time, stay stay weird, America. America.